I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. You're listening to Once Upon a Gene, and I'm Effie, Effie Parks. And I am so grateful that you're here. Thank you for taking the time to tune into the show. It means a lot to me. I have a really special guest today. And if you don't know him already, I'd be surprised he is a crusader, a pioneer, a trailblazer. He founded the KIF-1A organization to find a cure for his daughter, Susanna, who has KIF-1A. Anyone who knows him loves him. He's honest and vulnerable and relatable. And he's just, uh, he's one badass advocate for sure. And we're talking about something really tough in this episode. He's been dealing with a really severe medical issue over the last six to eight months, and not a lot of people know about it. And he wants to open a dialogue about what is going to happen if I, the caregiver, die. Something we all think about, but don't really plan on happening. This is a tough episode, and Luke really shares a lot of, of pain that has been going on. And... Hold your hearts for this one, and I hope you enjoy the show. Please welcome the magnificent Luke Rosen. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Effie. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is I've really been looking forward to this. Are you kidding me? I've been trying to nail you down for like a year, so I am just so grateful that you're here with me today for a hundred reasons. I know, me too. And I, I'm so grateful for you and, and, and all you do. And I am I tracked you down this time. I was like, <laughs> this is where I can, you know, talk about this subject. Well, thank you for trusting me. And I am just really looking forward to talking about a subject that really hasn't been broken open in our community that much, if ever, really. Definitely not on the podcast. You are like one of these beings to me that are just like a really special advocate groups, you know, like you remind me of Daniel and Bo and Mike and Casey and like, I'm in awe of the work that you've done and who you are as a person and what you bring to our community as a dad. So for anyone who doesn't know, give me a little background about yourself, Kif1A and your beautiful little girl. Well, first of all, that was that's like amazing company to be mentioned in. Those true. those guys are pretty incredible. <laughs> so thank you. Um, yeah, so you know, Susanna is our second daughter. Uh, we have a son, Matt, who's three years older than Susanna. And in 2016, Susanna, you know, 
a familiar story that you know we hear often um, after she was born in 2014. But in 2016, after trying to kind of sort out what was going on with her, we finally got that diagnosis of a mutation in her KIF1A gene. And I say finally got that diagnosis. For us, it was two years. I've since met people in our community who, I, you know, we talk about this a lot, right, that have waited years and years and years. So that like excruciating two years, um, I can't imagine it being compounded by more time. But anyway, we when Susanna was diagnosed, we could find maybe you know, 15 or 20 other people in the world and literature and otherwise that had her disease mutation in this gene. And so we, you know, my wife, Sally, who's just amazing, we were like, well, what do we have to do next? How do we, you know, and when the doctors told us that, you know, there, there was no treatment, no cure, and that it was a neurodegenerative disease with a progressive course, we kind of said, well, how do we, what do we do next? And the answer was really simply put to us, you got to go find a hundred kids to get like a, a picture of the disease. So we could understand it more. And anyway, we ended up just um, sort of with others galvanizing this community to uh, starting kifone.org, the foundation, and pulling together uh, this this really strong, incredible, amazing, rare community and researchers and clinicians and this research network that uh, became and is uh, central in that community. We're all We're all in it for you know, to put our shoulders behind the back of, of this translational research and make sure our kids get treatment somehow. It's amazing what you did in the short amount of time and with all of that going on, you know, with Susanna's health and so much so that you sparked a movement uh, and you got Jackson Lab to like take you on pro bono and make you a little baby Kif1A Susanna mice. Talk about that. Oh my gosh, those people... Cat Lutz and the people at the Jackson Laboratory are the most amazing. I mean, you know, we use the word relentless a lot. Like those are some relentless researchers and people who are just, you know, have have come to our our small um, family meetings and met kids and families. And I was, you know, when when we started, everyone kept saying, and you guys, I know Effie have heard this before, and so so many others in our community have. So. It's not new, but every time I reached out to, uh, well, well, first of all, we started the website kif1a.org not to start a foundation, right? We did that wasn't our our goal. I got this phone call from this uh, parent. I tell this story more than once, but I got this phone call from this parent when uh, Suzanne was first diagnosed, and he was this um, older father of a kid from Kentucky, and he said, you know, he said my daughter was just diagnosed with this disease. And I said, you know, the budding novice researcher, we all kind of I started to be going, well, did you read this publication? It was this one publication out there. And he said, no, I couldn't afford the 35 bucks on PubMed. And I was like, that is, everyone has the right to learn about their disease. Like that's, so we started the website just to, and we completely broke the law, you know, and we uploaded every publication that had anything to do with <laughs> Kif1A onto it. So anyone could read about it. And I also put my cell phone number on there. So that's when people started started calling. And as we started talking to researchers, the first question everyone would ask was, you know, well, is there a mouse? And is there a mouse model of the of the disease of KIF-1A? Is there a KIF-1A mouse model? And there wasn't. 
and we knew we kind of needed one. It was clear that that was the kind of first step in how what we needed for to eventually get to a treatment. And we're like, we need a mouse. <laughs> like, how, how do we get a mouse? I, I wasn't, I, you know, at this time I was still, I was an actor for 25 years before all of this happened. And so I certainly wasn't a scientist and didn't know anything about mouse models. And except for the fact that we needed one because every author on every publication or every scientist told us we did. So we were sitting at dinner one day and I was like, we need a mouse. And my and Sally, Sally said, we should turn it into a hashtag. And then we kind of kind of evolved into let's reach out to the, you know, the at that time we, we had maybe 50 families that we'd found. So let's reach out to the families and have all of the families record in one in their own way, you know, as long as they say the words, we need a mouse have them take out their phones and just record either their families, their friends, their the kiddo, whoever saying that. And so we did it first um, and sent it out. I was like, hey, guys, can you make a um, little tiny film of you just, just capture yourself and your family saying we need a mouse? And then all of a sudden it became all the kids did it and the families did it. And it was just this awesome thing musicians started doing it we had the muppet like one of the muppets did it <laughs> like we had like people off the street my high school math teacher and baseball coach did it you know and we just directed them all to the jackson laboratory because we, we knew that that was a, a a team that could make us a mouse model and we just you know we need a mouse and yeah i'll never forget the phone call when i was sitting in my car after having dropped the kids off at school and the phone rang and it was Kat Lutz from a Jackson laboratory and some, some members of her team. And she went on to explain to me, you know, what it took to make a mouse and what they need. And in my head, it was like, you don't just need one mouse model line. You need several. And the dollar amount was like, just kind of with every sentence, you know, increasing. And at the end of the conversation, she said, I, I guess what I'm trying to say, Luke, is that we'll do this for you and, and for the families. The first like example of how a community can come together to produce like this critical scientific tool that didn't exist before. And so it was a community of non-scientists, of parents and caregivers and patients and people, musicians off the street who wanted to um, make sure our kids got a mouse. So the Jackson Laboratory... Um, you know, they're still big collaborators of ours. And yeah, we're just so thankful to have them. That was, that was We Need a Mouse. I love that story about the power of it all, right? And I also just like can imagine how joyful that the people at Jackson Lab f were when they got to offer that to you. You know, how much your community touched them and just the humanity between the two of you and not just parents and not just researchers, but human beings in helping other human beings and just like the magic that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally magical. And, and, you know, that team, they've been with us for, this is year four, year five, you know, I can tell in those five years, you know, man, we've lost too many kids, too many kids, many kids have died. And, and when I, when I mentioned that to the folks at Jack's, they, you know, I can tell that they feel that too. And they are, they're in it and, and get that devastation and it's, it resonates and hits them too, just as hard. 
I asked you to share that to obviously introduce you to anyone who doesn't know you to maybe inspire uh, something in them to do something amazing like we need a mouse and to also just show what a backbone and what strength the KIF-1A organization has and what you've helped create. And it's it's really amazing. And I know that that's been a topic that's been really difficult. And I know the last year for you has been really, really hard. And not a lot of people know what you've been going through while also running this foundation and working for a cure for Susanna and other kids like her. So let it out. Luke, tell me what's been happening the last year and especially the last six months. Thanks. I get eight months ago, well, nine months ago, I thought that I had kidney stones, right? Like I'd had kidney stones before and kind of hurt. And, you know, it was all virtual because COVID was going on. And so I called the kidney stone clinic and, you know, they gave me antibiotics and things got better for a little bit. And then one day I just couldn't get out of bed. I was in so much pain. And you know how one day of not being able to get out of bed, like, throws a monkey wrench into the entire engine of a rare disease family, right? Like it's, um, that was, I, I remember thinking, oh man, this sucks. Like Sally's going to have to, just today, Sally's going to have to do everything because I can't, you know, get out of bed because of these darn kidney stones. And so the doctor said, come in for a, a CAT scan. So I went in for a CAT scan and it's like, so painful. And they said, well, you, you actually don't have kidney stones. You have a perforated diverticulitis. And what that essentially is, is that part of your upper colon is perforating a little bit. And it's not like a common surgery, but it's a, it's a procedure that's done a lot. And it's, it's something that's, um, you know, relatively straightforward to, to fix. And so I said, okay, great, let's go do that. Let's fix it so I can get back to it. And so I, you know, went into Columbia for the surgery and the surgery that was supposed to take two hours or something like that ended up taking a little bit longer. And when, and it was really painful and I was in the hospital for about five days and able to do like the foundation zooms and everything from the hospital, I was recovering and it felt, you know, normal. Okay. Maybe this is just the recovery time for abdominal surgery. Then I went home after five days and this was in, you know, COVID was still roaring. So I was alone in the hospital. Sally couldn't come. And, you know, even if she could have come, she couldn't have come because she, all of Susanna's medical needs, which was also at Columbia right across the street. So there were, there was a time where I was in the hospital and she was just across the street with Susanna. But, and then I went back after they had released me um, uh, and I got home. I went back for my post-operative appointment, which is essentially I thought was going to be to make sure the stitches were, you know, ready to come out. And the doctor came in and as I was lying there, he said, we took out a lot of cancer during your procedure and you have stage 3C, which is pretty late stage colon cancer. And I was just, you know, immediately, the only thing that I was thinking about, Effie, was, holy shit what's going to happen to Susanna and to the research we're doing to find a treatment for her and kids like her if I die. And 
the doctor was very kind and went on to explain what my options were and what the next steps were and all of that. But I really could only think about what would happen if I, if I died to, to Susanna and, and to we're so close to hopefully finding a treatment. If I die, is this just going to stop? And will she and other kids like her with KIF-1A just go, you know, will the treatment just not happen and their disease will become beyond repair? Uh, So it was this horrific feeling that I know a lot of people, a lot of parents like us, Effie, I know have that thought, like you and I have talked about before, right? Like, who can't die? That was all I I was thinking about at that moment. And then I went, I, I didn't. I didn't call Sally. It was a two-hour drive from our house. I wanted to like tell her when I when I saw her. I didn't. I couldn't like call her and tell her. So that was how I found out. Ugh, Luke, I mentioned earlier the only time that this has really been uttered. I feel like in our community is I'm just not going to die before my kid. We can't die. Who's going to take care of our kids? What's going to happen? Will anyone love them and take care of them the way I do? And that's it. That's as far as we talk about this subject. We don't talk about our own health. We don't talk about what is going to happen and what things we need to put in place and share just the anxiety or the fear or the real life stuff that that comes into your life, like cancer and what it can do to your mental health, to your family, to just the whole ecosystem. You're right. I mean, it was a whole new ecosystem. That's a great way of putting it. The cancer that I had was pretty aggressive and doesn't have a very high cure rate. And so it was, I knew this was going to be a shitty, you know, coming six, but we heard that, you know, we did meet the oncologists and found an oncologist that would, you know, we really wanted aggressive, lots of chemotherapy, right? I wanted a high dose. I wanted to make sure we got it you know, fully addressed. And so we knew it was a six month course of chemotherapy that we were about to start. And that was seven months ago. I mean, you really couldn't have picked a worse kind of cancer, Luke. Come on, really. (laughs) I know. I was, Effie, I was really sick. Uh, Susanna has these really, really horrific nighttime nocturnal epilepsy. And we're constantly afraid that you know something's going to happen at night and she's going to have a seizure in her sleep and so one of us always sleeps with Susanna and that one of us became Sally right because I was you know puking half the night and chemotherapy and just in you know not I would I would have to say I would have disrupted Susanna's sleep was an understatement it was it was pretty pretty messy but and then one morning, Sally was walking into, she checked on me every couple of hours and she found me just unconscious in between the nightstand and our bed. And, and this is really hard to talk about, but uh, there's a this awesome guy named Paul. He's a firefighter and he lives across the street. He's our across the street neighbor. And Sally came up and saw me and had to go make sure Susanna was safe somewhere. And Nat, our 10-year-old son, came into the room and saw me. And he ran across the street and got our firefighter neighbor, Paul, to come over. 
you know, the wherewithal to, to go and do that. And that did. And, you know, that I, I, the ambulance came and I had dislocated my shoulder and broken a couple of ribs and it was just too weak to even stand up really. So, uh, but now all of a sudden that was the moment when I realized that my son has now gone from being terrified that his sister is going to, you know, be really sick or have some sort of event happen to now having to worry about his dad. Man, that's heartbreaking. So much stress on a little person, but wow, you know, it's it's that phenomenon that we talk about, these these kids, right? These siblings and how much strength they have, especially in the moment. And for him to run across the street to firefighter Paul, oh my gosh, wow. Oh yeah, it was just the, and that wasn't the first. That was just the first time of, of three times where something similar to that happened. You know, all the while having this fear that I'm gonna die, and I knew that that the care would be okay because Sally was there, my family was there. It would suck if I was gone, and you know, but people would miss me, and but I had this sense that, you know, I just couldn't die because the, would the research go on, you know, and would we, if there was one thing I have to do in my life, it's to figure out a way to find a treatment for Susanna and the Kifflin A kids. And I started feeling this, I started having this, this newfound empathy for my daughter, for Susanna, because all of a sudden, like I couldn't get out of bed. All of a sudden I was falling and breaking bones, which is, that's, that's her job. (laughs) That's what she does. And uh, I was not able to go places and I was not able to go play, you know, and dislocating the shoulder really sucked because I couldn't, I was still coaching my son's baseball team and I I only missed one game. Like I I made it to those games. I I didn't miss much work. It was virtual help, but making it to those games, I'd have to, you know, sort of plan my day around it. I need to get nap here so I can go to this baseball game and but then when I fell and hurt my shoulder I couldn't throw the ball anymore and that was almost as devastating as the cancer for some reason but I started having this my god is Susanna feels this way every day I got right now I have this horrible neuropathy in my hands which is something that you know is a side effect of the chemotherapy is you have your fingers get numb and your hands get numb for a while after you've stopped. And one of the things that all of our KIF-1A kids have is peripheral neuropathy. And sometimes Susanna will wake up in the middle of the night and say, my hands are burning on the inside. And she'll say that in her own way. You know? And I feel that. Uh, I had that. I was falling. I was having, having this. I, I, and I'm thinking, my God, is this something she lives with every day and other kids live with every day? I love what you said about newfound empathy. You know, I think in a, in a situation like this, where life has given you a surplus of clouds, (laughs) maybe most people would take the cancer and consider not working so hard or slowing down and maybe putting advocacy on the back burner. But for you, the idea of the research and how far you've come and what would happen next is actually what kept you alive. Yeah, totally. Susanna kept me alive. But I was also wrong, right? Like I, our community, like so many others, I realized that, you know, and I've said this 
before you, I think, is that, you know, one of the things a good leader does is to surround yourself with people who are better than you, you know, and I, and thank God that I, I was so fortunate to have, you know, the, one of the early kids to be diagnosed after Susanna is Parker and, um, Parker's family, Kat Ashley, who's the president of the foundation, man, she is just, she holds the whole foundation together. And we were able to, through this incredible grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative two years ago, to hire a chief science officer who wasn't just a chief science officer, but an incredible communicator and an incredible person. So, you know, and, and I met this mentor, a guy named Hans Christinger, who is just incredible, who was on the board of the foundation. And we had all these research initiatives going. Kat Lutz, the folks at Jackson Laboratory, and, and Wendy Chung, who's our champion, Susanna's doctor. And, and all the while, you know, Susanna's getting worse and worse. She's having more and more seizures. She's falling more. She's, so I'm, I'm watching her get worse. And we all are, and, uh, and everyone's struggling. And, but I realized, like, if I die, the research isn't going to stop because we've created this community of people who are, who are leaders and are relentless and who are going to make sure that our kids get treatment. And it's not, you know, all the weight isn't on one person's shoulders or even two people's shoulders. It's this community of caregivers and patients and doctors and scientists and advocates and yeah so I, I was wrong and I was so the moment I realized that I was pretty sick and, and the moment I realized that was such a relief and I think that once that really set in and was really really obvious that you know that the science wasn't stopping that the fundraising wasn't stopping that the advocacy wasn't stopping that it, nothing was stopping without me was when I took the first deep breath and, and was like, okay, kind of focus on this cancer a little bit and, and get rid of it. Mm. So do you ever listen to Brene Brown at all? Yeah. Yeah. She talks about this marble jar in a lot of her stories and about this trust jar, you know, when every time, you know, someone shows you trust or whatever, you can put an extra marble in the jar. And it kind of reminds me of this for you, right? Like you've made this marble jar, Luke, and there's so many people and actions and successes that are already in it. And you have like this whole world scooped together, you know, with love and passion and direction and there's no turning back and it's not going to shatter and disappear. And I, while I actually think it's important that you did hang on to that in the time where you were in literally the depths of despair, looking down at death for yourself, that you needed to think like that. Maybe that is what kept you alive, Luke. But the fact that you did also recognize that there was this marble jar and that you finally got to take a deep breath, those two things are amazing. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it, Effie, and I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, God, I don't know how. And I, I have no idea how these epically strong single parents can do what they do because I certainly, you know, couldn't be in this without my, you know, without Sally. And I, and I, all of a sudden she was caring for Susanna and me, you know, and, and it was, it was a time where uh, there was this, uh, 
yeah, this just having to be having to trust so many people and and uh, and I didn't I didn't talk too much about me having cancer and they, I mean my close closest closest friends knew you knew and my family knew and my colleagues knew and folks at the foundation knew but I didn't want to make this the disease that was focused on or or me the the person who was focused on when it came to you know tweeting and posting and sharing I watched this TikTok last night actually and it was one of those prompt questions and the woman said when the worst thing happens or when you're going through the hardest time in your life and everything is awful who's that one person that you can always call upon who's that one person that you know you can bring all of your stuff to and then there was video response after video response after video response of all men saying the same thing and they all said nobody i'm a man i'm supposed to be strong we don't talk about our rock bottom and i know that you're you're so open and so many of the dads in our groups are but would you would you say like from a dad perspective in this world that you identify with that i appreciate that but i don't identify with it for me the person i go to always is my father you know he makes me a better father knowing that he is there to uh, give, give me advice and, and guidance all the time. And I think that talking to people and the power of well, the power of story, but, but also being able to have, have those rocks, Sally, my father, my brother, if you don't lean on them, then I, I couldn't keep it. I couldn't do it myself and I couldn't not talk to somebody uh, about it or have somebody, you know, Mike Porath, who's an incredible incredibly close friend of mine. You guys, you guys probably know Mike who started the mighty. Um, one of the like hashtags that Mike started a while back was check in with me. He would just check in once in a while. And I think that that is an important sort of hashtag to live by, right? Is check in with me, whether it's checking in with yourself or reminding somebody you love to check in with you. Um, I'm fortunate. I don't have to remind people too much because I have a very loving family, but and, and friends. Um, so yeah, I I appreciate that. And I see that 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 there's this very masculine kind of I'm gonna walk this walk by myself and fix it by myself. But I certainly um, recognize that that's impossible. And it's also just like not wanting to burden other people, right? It's a sense of caring in a way. It's not even all ego and being strong, but it's wanting to take care of other people around you. It's shouldering. And is that, that's a masculine thing to identify with, I guess. Right. I guess we should so. revive that hashtag on Twitter. I think that's a really good idea. And I hadn't heard of that one, uh, the check in. I love yeah. that. Check in with me. When you get it in your head that you're going to fix something, and you know this, Effie, I watch you do it every day. I watch so many rare disease advocates do it. It's hard to let go of that. And so I guess maybe some people think I'm going to fix things myself and go on and walk that path without inviting others in. But I, you know, like a lot of our rare disease friends, family and colleagues, like, you know, got really good at asking for 
help in the right way. And, 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 uh, but it, there was this significant isolation, I think, because of the times. Like you couldn't, you know, when I've had friends who've had cancer or family who've had cancer, you could just pop in to say, hi, do you need anything? You know, and with COVID and with our medically fragile kids, people couldn't just pop in. You know, the loneliest I'd ever been was when I was in the hospital after my surgery. And, you know, Sally couldn't come, family couldn't come because there was only one person allowed up there. And I looked at the nurse one moment where I was like, try, and this is, this is the messiness of life, right? You know, whether it's a rare disease or colon cancer, like, you know, trying to get up and get to the bathroom in time and like not making it. And was just sitting on the floor in this hospital room. And it was, I, I thought to myself, my God, this is the most vulnerable that I am. I've never, yeah, I don't think there's been a time outside of after, you know, hearing about Susanna's diagnosis that I've been so in need of, of help. And this incredible nurse, oh my gosh, Denise, she was amazing. She was my nurse for like four days, came in and like just saw me and like picked me up and like cleaned me up. and. I couldn't do myself and she put me back in the bed. And I remember like looking at her and saying, you know, you see, you've seen me at my like worst, you know, at my most, at my most vulnerable. And I don't even really know you. And she said, well, that's my job. And I love my job and I love the people I get to work with. And, and, and you are one of them. And I remember thinking, my God, like, that is remarkable. This person who is so every day sees people at their most vulnerable and and has that skill set to step in and with utter empathy and love and get that person cleaned up and back in bed, you know. Denise. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's heartbreaking to just imagine how alone you felt and that no one could come in and being on the floor like that, Luke. Man, I'm glad she came in when she did. And I'm Me too. Really, really sorry you've had to go through this. It's just so much extra uh, BS. So much extra bullshit. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like went through the chemotherapy and it ended. And chemotherapy <laughs> sucks, man. I mean, sure, if, if I know a lot of people who listen to your podcast and might hear this have been through it or know someone who's been through it. But it is like, I mean, it's quite literally poison, you know, but we went around thanks at Thanksgiving a couple of days ago, and we all, by all of a sudden, my brother's family from Maine came, and we were at our house around our table, and we all went around and said what we were thankful for, and I was, you know, last, and I always have a lot to be thankful for, and when it came to my wife, Sally, Sally said, I'm thankful for chemotherapy, and, you know, I just... I, I am thankful for chemotherapy too, that a tr treatment like exists too and realize that our kids need a chemotherapy. Our kids need a treatment. Like, yeah, it sucks. And you can come really close to being really, really sick and even dying, but there's a treatment and there's that knowledge that there's a treatment out there is so, so important. But our, our kids don't have that knowledge that there's a treatment out there and that's got to change. So. 
when our oncologist called us after I finished chemotherapy and after they had um, taken scans for, for, you know, again, I know a lot of people know about cancer and how, how it works, but it's like, you know, living scan to scan, right? Like after chemotherapy ends every three months and during chemotherapy, you get CAT scans to see if the cancer has landed in a different organ or is still there. And so after chemotherapy ended for me for seven months, my CAT scan was clear. And I was like, does this mean I'm like cancer free? And the doctor said, yeah, you are. And there's a 50, 60% recurrence rate with this one, but it's for now you're cancer free. And I thought, well, I'll be in that 40% and, and I can, life will be a little bit easier because I realized that, you know, there are other people who are working so hard to find treatment for our kids and it doesn't have to just fall on a few people's shoulders and you know I, I you can be sick and recover and Susanna after she has uh seizures she is in what you know they call a postictal state so it's it's usually involves her lying down in bed and I never ever would have imagined that I would say this, but when she would have a seizure and she would need to lie down in bed and I couldn't get out of bed, the moments where I was able to lie there with her as she was postictal and I was sick and, you know, we were watching Frozen or Home Alone 3. She's really hooked on Home Alone 3, 3 for some reason. <laughs> That's like her, she always has for it. Um, but those, those moments, like, forget about cancer. Like, I, I, I'm kind of thankful for those moments because we had this connection that, you know, was this need for help. And uh, I, I got the help, but we still have to get our kids the help of having treatment. So next Thanksgiving, you know, when it's my turn, I can say that I'm thankful for whatever treatment our kids have. I'm just on my second tissue over here. <laughs> I love the, I love thinking about those moments of holding holding your little one especially after a storm. Yeah. And and finding finding the beauty in it also. Yeah. I I mean isn't it and it makes me feel there's almost this guilt that comes along with with relishing those moments that you know only come after like the storm right after the worst things but that it takes when somebody's lying down next to you recovering and you need to recover and you can just recover with each other it's a chemical reaction <laughs> no guilt necessary yeah so what would you or what how has your mindset sort of changed since the last 6 7 months and what would you say to the parents who are fearful of this or who are living with a health condition that nobody knows about? I accidentally helped an army of people lay the groundwork for this, you know, rare disease foundation that is driving research and that I just know is going to be responsible for bringing treatment for our kids. It, it wasn't, I didn't plan to, 
to start this foundation and to lay that groundwork. But in retrospect, all that fear and that question that we all have, every caregiver, parent of a kiddo with rare disease or relative of somebody who has a rare disease, like we said in the beginning, we've all thought about it, right? We can't die. We can't let our kids out with us because who's going to take care of them? If we're adding on the mission of discovering treatment, I would say that for those parents of rare disease kids who can mobilize a focused community and find the, surround themselves with people who are better than them at, at certain things, then when the worst storm does hit and you get cancer and you're, you know, think you might die, that if you have that, that knowledge deep in your heart and that, that somebody and this team of people that you know so well, even without you, are going to go forward and find treatment for your kid, then you can kind of relax a little bit. And maybe that relaxation will help you survive or help you enjoy whatever time one has left, maybe. But, but if we can plan ahead and create an infrastructure in the rare disease world of advocates, scientists, and researchers, and people who, if one person gets knocked down, it's certainly not going to stop the, the moving mission. So lay that groundwork, man. Well, you've done it. And what I love is that you found trust in it. Trust that everybody else has always had, by the way, for you, Luke. Um, but I love that you found it yourself and you realize that there is that marble jar there or that guidepost or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And to just really cultivate and nurture these communities because it's important to continue no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned that I coach my kids' baseball team, right? And I've coached this baseball team for a long time and I played baseball for a long time. And, and I was making the other day the, this talking about the similarities between how, how hope is a hope is something that has to stay in your routine. And I was likening it to a, a swing, right? In, in baseball, if I love coaching kids who have never played before, and I, and this is true for, you know, I try to coach Susanna's, you know, her, her team and, and kids, you know, special Olympics kids who are trying with different, you know, who get around differently, but it's the same for everybody. If, if you don't have any bad habits, it's so much easier to teach somebody the right swing, but if they have bad habits, it's harder to break those habits and, and to teach them that. And I think hope is like that. If you have to constantly remind yourself to hope and to keep hope. And, or at least I do, I don't know about other people, but if I'm watching my son bat and he's got a, a hitch in his swing or something, and I have to remind him, I say, you know, Hey, Matt, keep the bat off your shoulder or keep your weight back. I feel like somebody also was telling me this whole time, Hey Luke, keep, keep your hope up, keep hoping. And don't lose hope. I think that the more people who are telling us that and who are driving that home, 
if we do everything we can to foster that hope, like everything you do, Effie, and your, you know, this very podcast, it's easier to keep the hope because it's part of our routine. But the minute hope stops being part of our routine is the minute, I don't know, I guess we waste time because we have to go back and find it again. Oof, I love how you said that. And maybe not lost it, but that's when you have to go and gather all those, all that infrastructure that you put in place beforehand to draw upon when you need it most. Ugh. Well, I'm thankful for chemo and firemen and nurses and fathers and communities and hope yeah. and you, Luke. And I'm I'm really grateful for everything that you do and for your honesty and for just being vulnerable and for talking about such a personal matter and for making people think. And I'm just I'm just really honored to have had this conversation and to share any bit of space with you whatsoever. Effie, I, you know, in a word right back at you, I can't like what I, I and I, thanks for letting me come and, and talk on, on your podcast about this. Cause I couldn't, I, I didn't know how or where or when or who I wanted to, I was going to be able to talk to about this. Um, and I said before I was listening to one of, I'd listened to your podcast like religiously and I was listening to an episode, Charlie's episode. And then I was uh, reading this story. And I don't know how I didn't read this story about you before, you know, like about when you were, uh, your experience in the park with Ford and just how much it means when somebody stops and looks at you and, and looks at you with this intentional hope to engage you in a conversation or a story or just to have that like fleeting look of eye contact and treat you like a human being and and when i was reading that story about you and ford in the park and kids stopping to just be there with you is is a kind of moment where i immediately jumped online and was like hey effie can i please come and talk to you about the most depressing thing <laughs> in the entire world <laughs> so thank you uh, I do what I can Luke uh, and my doors are open yeah no those moments those moments in our lives when someone sees you and when you feel normal and when you see curiosity and not fear uh, they will put pep in your step for weeks and even when you just think about them later and finding ways to identify in other people's lives, you know, and nodding along and going, yeah, I totally get that. That's what I love about this stuff. That's what I love about being able to be a passive listener or, you know, check in with people who are along this same path is you get little hits, right, that you need. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's just enough or it makes you think or whatever it does. I'm I'm really happy to know that story, Luke. Thanks. I'm happy just to uh, to be here. I'm happy to be here, <laughs> literally, but also to be here with UFE. And I just um, our community is so so strong that we got each other's back, and I'm thankful for you having my back. Anytime. And I am also super annoyed that like almost everyone that I talk to is in the East Coast. Like, what is it? <laughs> What is it about the East Coast? You're so far away. I know, we, I, but I, yeah, I know. I, I see your pictures and then I see, you know, 
you're on an island. I'm like, my God, Effie's on an island. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I guess Manhattan's an island too. So, you know, we have that in common. True, true. We'll all get together again in person sometime really soon. And and I just, I, I find myself longing for the moment where kids like Ford and Susanna can just meet and be together and, and because that purity and that, that magic lives within our special kids for sure. hundred percent. That will be the actual wonderland for sure. Yes. Okay, Luke. Well, I will let you back to your busy day. I know you have a lot to do and hopefully also resting. So that's a to-do list. Yeah. Um, But thanks. Thanks for being my guest. I'm really excited to share a conversation. And I think that it's going to resonate with a lot of people and get a conversation started that is a little hard to bring up and a little hard to navigate and work through. So thanks for being our guinea pig in it all, unfortunately. Thanks, Effie, for all you do. It's such an honor to be here. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, Please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.